You were never out of the fight. You were created for a time such as this. And you are now preparing to be sent into battle. God is calling you to be his disciple, to be formed in virtue and holiness. He has appointed you as an ambassador of his kingdom. To go and represent him to his people. And he's enlisted you as a soldier of Christ. To be sent out to fight for the good in this world. You are not made to make excuses. It's time for you to take extreme ownership for your life all of your life. It's time to rise up and finally be the man or woman you were created to be. Follow God. Lead others. And never surrender. It is time to begin seeking excellence. Welcome, everybody, to the Seeking Excellence Podcast. This is your boy, Nathan Crankfield. Excited for today's episode with one of my good friends, Ted Delacath. Ted, how are you doing today, my man? Nate, uh, very excited to be here and honored. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I'm super pumped to, to talk with you. We always, we've always we had great conversations for, how long has it been now? Like eight years we met? Seven I don't like to say ago? that. I feel old when we talk about how long we've known It's pretty other. wild, man. I've been thinking about that. Yeah. Every year, like every after every new year, I feel like I'm always like calculating different things and like adding that extra year to how long. It's one thing to say, oh, I went to high school with him. That's a four-year block. And once you start getting to those eight to 10, you're like, this is a middle school. This is a childhood through middle school friend. Right. Once you start to think in like those constraints, you're like, wow, I've invested in this person. Do I want to keep doing this? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> That's very good. Well, I'm excited. I would love to kick off with just kind of an intro to who you are and how we know each other. I'm hoping I don't have a lot of confidence in your intro of yourself because I know that you often <laughs> downplay your life and your accomplishments. I was just trying to read. I was just reading uh, one of your bios on the Internet. Um, oh, that's and so good. I figured that after this, I'll probably have to you know drill you for more <laughs> questions to actually give you like a proper intro, maybe before the episode starts. But do you want to yeah. give your uh, your humble introduction? I will, I will give an introduction, and then you can decide <laughs> if, it's, if it's satisfactory or sufficient. Deal. Um, so grew up in the Midwest, and I think it's probably um, it's probably a, a – I'm like overthinking it now because you, you're, I know what you're going to fill in. So grew up in a single-parent household in the Midwest, um, played really bad college football. My team was really good, but I was a D3 athlete, so one of those tryhards where you go to pay to play – um, did some stuff after college in which I found I was still looking for that camaraderie, a way to serve my nation. So then joined as an officer, did the bidding school for boys where I met you. Let's go. Um, ne nothing's ever changed after that. Um, and then <laughs> since then, uh, have followed a, a kind of a winding path through studying some um, foreign policy in Ireland to coming back to the United States, helping with COVID, and now very proud to be a principal at the McChrystal Group and also in the reserves. So um, that is a very high level, and I'm sure you will call BS on some of that. So I turn it back over to you, my good friend. Well, I appreciate it. I, th I feel like that was pretty solid. Um, it, yeah, you did You did anticipate some of the gaps I was going to fill in because that's some of the stuff I want to talk about. But can you remind me, so you did OCS, and so what did you do um, in between college and OCS for the Army? 
Yeah, and it might be applicable to some of your listeners because I know some of your listeners are geeks like we pretend not to be, but we definitely are. For sure. I, so I, I graduated. I did a little-known fellowship called the Coro Fellowship, and here fellowship in regards not to the faith but into the need for Americans to feel special. So we call everything a fellowship and everybody becomes a fellow. Um, the Coro Fellowship is based on John Dewey's belief in experiential learning. So over nine months, you work in seven different sectors. So you have to do a nonprofit sector. You have to do a public sector. You have to do a private. And across all that, you're not allowed to have any ideology, which is really fascinating. So I got mm. put with um, a, a very, a very conservative gentleman who had no constraints or hindrances on the Second Amendment whatsoever. And I wasn't allowed to have an opinion. All I, all I was allowed to do was to serve in his office. I'll tell you what, it was one of the most humbling things to do, man, where you have to turn yourself over and say, I'm here to be a servant, which probably gets us to when we start to talk about what it means to actually serve something greater than yourself. So I, I feel like that was the first humbling thing. And it was during that that I signed up for OCS and then got to shave my head and do all the cool guy stuff that we did. Gotcha. Yeah. And, you, and then you continued to voluntarily shave your head, much, <laughs> much to my dismay, to my unknown dismay. We just all thought you were just like bald or unable to like grow long hair. And then <laughs> randomly, like four years later, you just have this beautiful flow. one of the greatest surprises of my life there like if you think about it the there is something to say about the the catholic idea of traditional garb we all wear the same thing you minimize the amount of like stylistic or individualism yeah and i just remember waking up going i'm not gonna do my hair at 4 30 in the morning this is dumb you know bob shaving my head (laughs) yes like bob's got beautiful hair you gotta wait yeah you gotta count the cost and to bob it was never (laughs) Never worth it. I mean, it's never and, a question. And if you see Bob with a shaved head, you know why the the cost is not worth it. I have a very round head. I'm, I'm blessed. Yeah. Thank you, Mama D. You do for, for the very round. You did head. rock the shaved head. I'll give you that. Bob looked like <laughs> a, a sickly child <laughs> when he had the shaved head. <laughs> Just blowing up Bob. Bob's gonna listen to four minutes of this. <laughs> yeah, he's gonna be like, I'm done. I'm done. That's amazing. Well, one thing that just kind of hit me from uh, that recap of your life is. Uh, you know, I think it's really interesting how in today's world, high schoolers, really from grade school to high school, you're like forced and pushed to go to like the best possible college, you know? Yeah. And I think I've had this experience. I went to a good college and, you know, I'm sure you yeah. went to a good college, but neither of us went to like this, you know, outstanding yeah. university. I didn't go to this outstanding university on either the Catholic front or on like the education, or, you know, yeah, kind of yeah. premier front. And so I'm curious for you, like, I know my experience was very much driven from college and I learned a lot about life and really my ambition kind of really developed while I was in college. But did you kind of have ambition kind of coming out of high school or did like, what was your college experience life that led you? Like, when did you kind of shift to kind of being more of a, a, I know you're not going to talk about this, but more of a standout or pursuing like a higher level of achievement, if you will, because whether or not you acknowledge it, you have. So well, that's that is your opinion. Yes. Let me say one thing more generally, because you you hit something that is really top of mind for me. Um, and let me offer you a couple of shades and you can cut any of this. If you're like Ted went on a tangent, it was weird. I don't care about it. One, we over index way too early in life. You talk about the helicopter parents were like, they got to get into the right Montessori school at age two. And I was like, I don't know. I was eating paint chips at age two. Right. Like, I don't exactly understand what you're trying to do. But if you think about it as an X, Y axis, what we are telling kids is your trajectory. So if you think about the way that we are, we have a higher slope than most people, given some of the things that we have done, but you have some kids who just don't figure it out. So you're telling them at 18, your destiny is already here. And that's just highly unfair as a society. Yeah, it's so we need to figure that out. 
Um, and I, I was I actually was talking to um, a, a childhood like father figure of mine, and he brought up a great point, which is, and you're actually seeing this now in a number of studies. Um, one, people, this is the Malcolm Gladwell thing. People are holding their kids back more, just like so. If if we used to be four and we started kindergarten, now kids are starting at six or five. Um, and the, and I know you're going to get into the differences differences between men and women. So one thing that I'll just put on the table right away is that I, I think everyone says this: boys and girls mature differently. And you talk about the difference between a 16-year-old girl and a 16-year-old boy. And the 16-year-old boy over there in the corner punching the wall and the girl's like, here's my homework. And so right. how we how we set up institutions, um, and I know it's a very probably not favorable thing to say that like we probably have to help young men a little bit more in particular institutions because you're seeing now women are just eclipsing them in any educational environment early on. So yeah. leave all that to the side. We can pick that back up. That's a very welcome idea I, here, just not in the general world. Yes. <laughs> but, yes. but here um, amongst the Seeking Excellence listeners, that is a very uh, embraced idea, yes. I would say. And I will bring up the the book a little bit later on if we want to go back into that discussion. Um, directly to your point, right? You and I come from a similar-ish background in the regards that we were raised by strong women. And I think early on, I much of my life governing principle, and we'll get to the point where I, I'm a heathen and I don't have the same um, outlook as you do. But I, I look at a lot of life as arbitrary, right? So I was born into a particular household and I look at the difference between myself and my cousin. Uh, my mom has two sisters. They sadly have a number of addictions and have some, some mental issues that they have to work through. My mother does not, but she came from the same broken household. Then mm -hmm. she had, we had some tragic things go on in my childhood. And all the time, she's just coming back to choice, right? She's coming back. I might have these circumstances. However, I still have to choose for my child to make this better. So she very early on established, well, you don't really get an excuse, Ted. So everything that I was involved in, um, probably to a fault, and we should talk about that when you should quit, because we should all quit a little bit more. Yeah. Um, I was doing that because I didn't want to give her another problem. And I also wanted to make the most of the sacrifices she made. She, she'll never say this, right? But anybody that's ever says that a one-parent household is just fine, sure. And it's not optimal compared to a two-parent loving household. So that is a wildly outrageous thing to say. My mother would have loved a partner, and it would have been so much easier on our lives. Right. And so very quickly, right, you have to grow up. And so that's I think that's where the psyche was for me about wanting to do well for her and for her sacrifices. Yeah, absolutely. I think it, it's been something that's been really on my mind recently. I, I went on a retreat in October of last year that was on, uh, it was focused for adult children of divorced parents and it could be divorced, oh, never married, yeah. you know, your kids, like your parents could have gotten divorced when you were one or when you were 30, right? Like it was yes. a really wide group, but what was really nice about it is that like in the army, you have a lot more, there's a lot more of us, right? That come from kind of not yes. suboptimal uh, family life. 100%. And it's not like in the Catholic world, like you have everybody's come from these beautiful, perfect family homes. But there's just yes. something to the line that you, you hit me with right there that really struck a chord was just not wanting to put extra pressure on your parent, right? Especially yep. your, your favorite parent or the parent you spent the most time with, which for me was yeah, my yeah, mom, yeah. for you was your mom. Um, and, and that was a big driver for me. You know, my mom was a yeah. large motivation for me that kind of over time shifted, I think, as I matured um, from my kind of my college into my young adulthood. And I guess you're a young adult in college, but you know what I mean? My post-college adulthood yeah. was shifting more towards where I am now of wanting to provide for my current family, you know, looking forward 100%. to a wife and kids. Yeah. Um, but, but 
I think it all comes back down to that choice, you know, and realizing yeah. like we have a decision to make and we get to decide kind of the outcomes of our lives. What I struggle with with a lot of um, I think kind of well-off Catholics who I've come to know over the years is this yep. kind of like assumption that uh, things just work out, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. When you have, when you have, the it's just there. To, yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> that's, that's really not how it works. Uh, and there's something to, yeah, there's just something to that experience that I think is hard to recreate for people to help them to understand yeah. that uh, it's a weird balance, right? Because you think of people who, who are in poverty, right? Like, it, you always see a move with compassion for the the woes and the troubles that have yep. fallen them. But at the same time, right, you have to recognize that like we all have choices to make. We all make decisions that lead to the future outcomes of our lives. Right. And it's yes. so easy. And I think the the politics of today, right, are people focusing yeah. almost exclusively on one or the other of those yep. two things. Yeah, I think the what you bring up is that most of life is a spectrum and an acknowledgement and two things can be true simultaneously. You can look at the racial wealth gap in America. I have a good buddy who teaches at Yale that talks a lot about this and he says, I'm a successful black man in America. I can say two things at the same time. I can say the average black and the average white household have an 8x difference in terms of wealth. Mm -hmm. And I can also tell my young black men and women in my class, that is true. We should maybe do something to help that. And you don't get to use that as, as an excuse not to succeed in life. Right. And those, it's a really unpopular thing. And I think what you just did there, you put them up at the same time. You said both these things can be true. And what are you going to do about it? Yeah, I love it. So you, you kind of mentioned there, you know, your your uh, your paganism, if you will, for lack of a better term. <laughs> and so I, I don't love the Easter bunny. That's the only umbrage <laughs> I take there. You're like, you think that I have the Easter bunny. I got the tooth fairy. I'm like, I love them so much. No, me and the leprechaun are not homies. That like, is my assumption. Calm down with them. Yeah, <laughs> and that will <laughs> remain my assumption. But um, yeah, I want to say, I mean, I've had non-Catholics on the podcast before. I don't know if I've had anybody that will uh, identify in the same realm that you do. But I'm curious from your yeah. own thoughts, two things. One, <clears throat> excuse me, to hear your like current, like what you, how you describe yourself on a spiritual or religious yeah. level. And then also, has that changed at all throughout the years? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so maybe we start with the latter because I, I, I do think how you arrive to something really matters, right? Um, yeah. I, I like the show Community, if you've ever watched it. And there's a great scene where everyone's like going around saying, what religion they are. And the one guy that says he's agnostic, everybody just throws things at because everybody hates that person because they're not taking a stand. My agnosticism today is more from like a fancy word for it is epistemic humility, meaning there's a very real chance that the way we understand physics, quantum mechanics, all those things that are way smarter than me, they could be pointing towards some grander theory of force in the world. I, I'm not a mystic, but the way that you understand science, there's a possibility out there. I arrived to that position after having sought faith most of my young adulthood. So instead of going and getting absolutely smashed in college on um, on spring break, I went to, um, I think the first year was, I'm getting this either mixed up, but this goes to show how old we are, right? <laughs> I went to a faith trip um, with uh, actually what we call Death Resurrection Life. It was a play on TRL, it was DRL. And so I went with a bunch of friends who were all devout Catholics and so we went to Jamaica the first year and went to Costa Rica the second year. So rather than going down to Miami and, and doing um, doing things, I, I did that. And I, I was doing it for two reasons, Nate. One was one of my minors was uh, religion in college. And I was fascinated by faith and had always been seeking it or trying to understand it better. Was your school public school or was it? Uh, was we were it? Illinois Wesleyan. So we're kind of right. a, we are a little bit of a breakaway in that if anybody knows anything about the, the Wesleyan community founded um, in 
the Methodist tradition um, and kind of broke away from John Wesley as he went. Uh, there's much more formal um, religious institutions. Ours, ours was much more pluralistic. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. 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 Um, so in that way, and I know you never find faith and you hold it like it's this object, but you're always in process of it. It, um, for various reasons that we can get into, never fully clicked with me. However, I then did not go to this like Bertrand Russell, I hate it, or most so most of your listeners probably know Christopher Hitchens or uh, Richard Dawkins. Mm-hmm. Like it, I never took pride in telling someone they were stupid for believing in faith, especially when faith, in my opinion, and I think shows you, if you are a part of a community, and you see this a lot with um, young Jewish millennials, like many, many of them are not religious, but they still like the culture and community. And I think yeah. it's really short-sighted for us as a society to say a sign of progress is becoming less religious. I, I don't buy that. Um, and I think that's that might be a hot take with some of my more progressive friends, but I, I truly do see people when they are part of a community, and generally that can be a faith community, they are happier, they have a greater clarity about their value system, um, and I think it's just positive for America. I love it. And, uh, well, actually, I don't love it. I shouldn't say that, but I appreciate you sharing. Uh, I'll just play. But uh, you, um, so would your answer to the question if somebody asked you, do you believe in God? Are you generally like an I don't know? Like, not um, a yes I'm or a, no? I don't know, but uh, to use some more big words that are unnecessary, I don't believe in anthropomorphic, that thing of like a human like God in a, in a clockwork universe. And I realize there's many Catholics that don't believe that either. And they think that there's just a particular manifestation of how we understand the Holy Trinity or, or Jesus himself. Uh, but yeah, when people ask, I'm like, not generally how it is invoked in our public discourse. Interesting. I see. Well, I appreciate you sharing that. And one of the reasons why I wanted to bring you on, I, I, one of my goals for 2023 is to have more conversations and discussions with people who I disagree with. And I think that it's easiest to start with people who you are close with, right? Then before I go yeah. with people that are strangers on the internet who I vaguely know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, who hate me more than you do, um, <laughs> if that if that's possible. Um, <laughs> you know, you think that the more you know me, the more you'd hate me, but it seems to be the opposite. Not at all. Um, There's just a charitability there, the, right? Like I would, yeah. if you told me to climb a mountain, I'd do it for you in a heartbeat, which is we need to remember that when we have like fundamental disagreements with people. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I think that's huge. And so kind of going on with that, another thing that I'm really curious on, and this is an area that I don't know how much we agree or disagree on, is yeah. the political side. So I want to know yeah. how you describe yourself uh, politically and how, if at all, that's changed over the years. Yes. So it's a great call out. I think I don't like we, so we have a first past the post system. So I studied poli sci in college. I'm that nerd. I don't think a binary. So like, yes, no is productive for how you should think of your ideology. Um, first of all, you can show up at many different levels, right? So nationally we can all be very different than you and me being on the city council. That's yeah. a long way to say, I think we should talk about preferences and tendencies. I would say my preferences and tendencies generally put me at on the center left. If you had, if you had to have me answer every policy question. Um, and to your point, I think we talked about this one. There's things called Chesterton's fence. It's a general yeah. uh, conservative pillar. It means you come along a fence um, and there's a there's an economist that I know you would really like if you haven't run across him yet, a guy named Thomas Sowell. 
Um, he's got an unconstrained, constrained version of life, and he talks about everything in trade-offs. And I think while I disagree with him, and he's, he's got 50 IQ points on me, so I'm sure he cares if I agree or I disagree <laughs> with him. Um, but I, I do think where he's spot on is there are trade-offs. They're not just solutions. And I think too often when we're having a discourse um, on both sides of our current aisle, and there's very few independents, so I feel fine saying both sides, they will offer you a solution when that's malarkey. It's a trade-off. What they're saying mm -hmm. is, I want to prioritize X, and then I'm willing, and this is the part that is implicit that we never say, here's the trade-off, Y, Z, and the other. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. What do you think of the current kind of like political landscape in the U.S.? Like, do you see, like, if you had to list like a top three biggest issues in, yeah. it could be the culture or politics, what do you think you would yep. kind of- Hot garbage. Like? Just hot garbage. Uh, I would it. say, <laughs> I would say there's um, if your if your listeners are really interested about what I would consider, and I'm sure they are. Everybody's hanging on the edge for Ted Delacast thoughts. <laughs> I, I I first go with like the structures and incentives of our political system, right? Because in my opinion, if you start with gun rights, you're like, well, this is a failed enterprise. Two people are going to dig in. But I think most people can agree we want a fair fight when it comes to elections. So there's groups like Unite America that are talking about nonpartisan primaries, ranked choice vo voting, things that force people, and you see this, it passed in Alaska, where you and I are both candidates. We don't get to say, I'm a Democrat, I'm a Republican. Well, what does that actually mean? You force people to run on the policies and have a discussion. Very similar, right? I would say that while generally somebody saying they're a Catholic means you may more be more predisposed to voting for them, Crank, you would still do your due diligence as a citizen to say, well, yeah, but what does that actually mean when it shows up in policy? And I think we need to have systems that force people to be more specific and not get to hide behind um, ever smaller corners where four to five people vote for this one person and then they go for the, the general. Absolutely. I'm actually, I would say I'm more likely to vote for somebody who says they're conservative than Catholic because the majority of Catholics in uh, Congress, at least I know for a fact, are Democrats. Yeah. And, yes, and they are, against, which is a fascinating crisisover. Yeah, fascinating is a word to describe it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> maybe not the one I would use, but I guess that would also, I would agree that it's fascinating. This would be my top choice. <laughs> That's interesting, man. And so, you know, talking about Thomas Sowell, let's, let's jump ahead to that question of, especially considering yourself kind of center left and uh, the kind of balance between capitalism and socialism. So obviously we kind of yep. currently have like a mixed economy and yep. obviously socialism has been becoming more and more popular here in the U.S. Yeah. Um, yep. And I think there's a number of reasons for that, but, and I discussed some of those and thought about some of those yesterday, so I can share that too. But um yeah, curious, you know, one thing I love talking about this stuff with you, kind of going back to what we talked about before of disagreeing on things is it's yeah. it's beautiful also to have a mutual respect, like intellectual respect for yeah. the person you're disagreeing 100%. with and debating with because it's yeah. so easy in today's world. And this is something that I often bring to conservative conversations, I feel like, yeah. in, in pushing back on this idea um, that everybody on the radical left is either dumb or brainwashed exactly. or evil. Yeah. Well, I think that there's some that exist that are. <laughs> and I think that there's some that exist on the right that are. I do think there's more on the left that are, on the radical left. Um, yeah. But nevertheless, uh, yeah, I think it's really important to have that. And so I'm curious to hear your thoughts on what do you, between free markets and socialism, um, is yeah. that one of the things you feel like you disagree with Thomas Sowell on? And um, if well, so, I think why? Before to jump into it, and again, I love it. Ted, what are your thoughts on Thomas Sowell? No one cares because he's a genius and you're not. So I <laughs> He think is pretty smart. 
He's very, very smart guy. There's a uh, Russ Roberts and there's actually a Thomas Sowell podcast. It just is like everything Thomas Sowell. They bring Steven Pinker on. He talks about him. You just yeah. go, this guy is brilliant. Um, and he was a communist at one point before he got to the University of Chicago. So uh, right. it's fascinating to see his trajectory. Um, before we get there, the point that you brought up at the very beginning, I always try to root ourselves in numbers. So there's a there's a metaphor I like, the map is not the territory, right? You say you're a Catholic, what does that really mean? You're using a symbol in order to confine what it is that represents all your beliefs that fall under that umbrella. Similarly, when you say conservative, I always bring us back to specificity. So if 70 million people voted for President Trump, those are 70 million of your fellow citizens. If you just have one person in your family who you love dearly that voted for President Trump. You don't get to say there's not a counterfactual about humanity on the other side. So we need to rid ourselves of this tribalism really quick. And I think we can generally do that by finding a, a counterexample. Um, and so you are an example of, of many in my life that of how conservatives are well-meaning, want a positive outcome in society and just come at it from a different angle. Um, now you're better looking and have a uh, better flow than me, but I mean, we'll put that to the side. So the, the disagreements with, Tom, <laughs> the, dif- the disagreements, uh, with Thomas Sowell, I'll, I'll talk less about Thomas Sowell and more about the, the map territory of capitalism, socialism, right? Like I love that you used mixed economy because first of all, we're just starting with an amalgamation and I forget who the, you did a, a solo podcast, right? Where you're talking about the Twitter th- thread with another individual. She yeah, is much more progressive Catholic type of thing. Yeah. yeah. And you used the two variables. The two variables were regulated economy and redistribution of wealth. Was that, mm-hmm. were those the two that talked about it? Yeah. The so, two kind of categories for describing or how like the Heritage Foundation and different organizations rank yep. countries based on economic freedom. Yep. 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 Yeah. So I, I loved that you brought that up because everyone always goes, well, I just want to be Norway. And you're generally talking to somebody that has just heard that tidbit and never says it again. Right. Um, If you think about the Nordic countries, the reason that they have such uh, thick social programs is because they have all of what you what is called in Africa, the resource curse. But they have such an extractive economy where they can use the resources that they have and they can deploy those back into society. And so you Mm -hmm. said perfectly, they they deregulate all of their resource extraction and then they use some of that wealth in order to plug it back into what would be more, quote unquote, socialistic um, programs. So when it comes to how I see the world, right, we have socialism. Well, we, we te- typically have communism in our military. I try to think about what are the things that economies of scale or the government should confine to themselves. I think we all agree defense is one of them. I think generally we agree plus or minus like public infrastructure is one of them. And I start to go point by point there. And then I think where we start to get the tension is to what extent do we want to socialize the downside? So 2008 showed this, right? I'm actually a proponent of allowing investment banks to go do wild things. How do you create a buffer between that and a savings and loans such that people can take wild risks? And I I think our country is partially built on that, while at the same time not socializing that insurance when they go down. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's not a direct answer to your, your question, but that's how I tend to try to structure my world in thinking institution by institution. Interesting. So you, so a mixed economy basically would be a hundred percent. And I think that's the beauty of it. We should discuss to what extent we want the government involved in these case by case basis. And then what you end up seeing is, okay, well, we just disagree here. So like, let's think right now we're talking about onshoring and more resilient economies, right? We figured out really quickly, oh, we previously in the nineties prioritized efficiency. And then we outsourced a bunch of 
things that we now know are critical. So to what extent should we onshore certain medicines, certain key technologies, and be okay paying a higher premium, which is not the market being the most efficient, but in the 1% chance that Vladimir Putin still has his, um, I was going to say LDE, (laughs) but I won't talk about what that is on this area, that we have those accessible and available to us. Efficiency is not, in this case, the governing principle. Yeah, that's interesting. And so what would you say for something like, uh, and I guess these are these are two different topics, but welfare, welfare generally for the poor, and then um, yep. the second one being uh, college tuition payoffs. Two college fantastic ones. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so taking welfare first and foremost, I think when we start, again, welfare is a big umbrella, right? What does it look like to create support systems that are pro-work incentivization. I think we struggled with this in the 90s in which we said, um, if you think about some of the programs in the 90s where they're like, well, you have to come to this place and do the work. There was a case study during the pandemic in which we just paid families and we saw childhood poverty drop. I know of folks that I, where I grew up that run businesses that are still struggling to find people to work. So there's an obvious tension here that we dropped childhood poverty and hunger, but at the same time, we, and maybe this is, for some people, this is the positive, right? The, the fight for 15, they, that raised their incentive to wait for a different job. And so those two things are in tension with each other. I tend to side on pulling back the absolute bare minimum resources. Obviously, we shouldn't let someone fall through the cracks and and die because they can't afford healthcare or food. But at the same time, I struggle with the, I, the conception of a universal basic income because I do think our society is governed around purpose, not money, but finding purpose in the thing that you do on a given day. Um, I know that is at odds with other people, but I think we are not here just to live. We're here to give ourselves over to something greater than ourselves. And so welfare programs that help us do that, I am a favor with, which would probably mean rolling some of them back. Yeah, that's really interesting. And so you mentioned something in there that I think I disagree with is the, uh, that I, I struggle with. And it's something that I've, I've kind of moved on throughout my life is this idea of like, should we, like, whose responsibility is healthcare? Right. So like, yeah. should we let somebody fall through the cracks when you said, should we let somebody fall through the cracks if they can't afford food or healthcare? Yeah. Um, I, I find, yeah, I don't know with both of them. I just, I, I think it's really challenging. And I think that it's, it's fun for me as you listen to that podcast, the God or government one. Yeah. Talking with different Catholics. Great name, it, by the way. Good. Good, branding. <laughs> good branding. I thought, I thought I came up with a good time for that one. I appreciate it. Cause now that I'm like almost 200 episodes in, I'm like, what the hell do I call these things? You know what I mean? I don't know how these guys come up with all these freaking titles. Um, I need some help just with some titles. So, um, but yeah, I think, you know, it's something that a lot of Catholics, I think Christians are, are very drawn to because of just the altruistic, you know, ideology of the faith and that, that kind of bend towards wanting to be generous. And I'm totally for that. And I think what I struggle with is I, I agree that like, if somebody in my community, um, and I think that Christ compels us, you know, through scripture and through the tradition of the church that if somebody in my community needs food or somebody in my community yep. needs health care, right? Like that yeah. we as a community are obliged, especially as a church community. community, are obliged yeah. to help them. What I don't agree with and what I don't like is the increasing idea that the government is our way to do that, 
right? Because yeah. one, you and I both know from working with the government and you more closely than me, that there's some waste that goes on when you do that, right? Yeah. The, the, need, the, the idea that, you know, the, the kind of classic one-liner that when you spend somebody else's money, you do so very frivolously yeah. and irresponsibly, yeah. right? 100%. Um, and then also, I think there's also the balance of there's times where you as, a, as the local community can re- retract that, right? Like there's certain people yeah. who just continue to be assholes and refuse to work yeah. and are lazy um, that you yeah. can say, no, you don't continue to eat for nothing. You don't continue to yeah. get your health care paid for for nothing. And that yeah. gets obviously trickier and trickier, I think, when it comes to welfare because of kids. Oh, but 100%. I, but I still think it's really difficult for me to, and I see it in my own family. I have so many family members throughout the years who have been on welfare or received subsidies, yeah. subsidies from the government that I'm like, if it was up to yeah. me, like this, like you could work, bro. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. and when you see that, I feel like up close and personal as I've grown older and have seen my own yeah. life. And then I wa- I look at my pay stub today and I paid a thousand dollars in freaking taxes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My first paycheck of the year. And it's like, yeah, I'm not yeah. as into that. And then you think of, obviously yeah. there's some good things that go towards, but then there's some yeah. that it's just like, yeah, I'd rather uh, go back to when we had church sponsored hospitals and, you know, like you talked about the decrease of religion, I think has led to this increase in government to a certain degree. Um, yeah. But when we had that, or we had church sponsored schools, you know what I mean? Like education yeah. was better. Healthcare was better. And it, the money was actually going towards the things that it was supposed to go to because nuns had a yeah. capped, uh, they weren't making more money whether you took more vaccines or got more procedures or took birth control or yeah. not. They just yeah. wanted to provide you health care, you know? Yeah. Um, and so I think that that, to me, is a better way to kind of structure the world. Um, yeah, I don't know. What are your thoughts on any of that? It's so many fun things to jump in there. I think I struggle I a lot, a lot of things. with... <laughs> no, they, I, this is, I feel like you should have a drinking episode where we are consuming moderately... But it'll it'll Absolutely. loosen up the conversation for those folks that you are not as close with. I I understand the impetus of wanting your faith to be the what we could call the safety net. And there's many conservatives today that are being much more strident. Um, and I don't mean that in a negative way about wanting to go back to that type of society. Where I struggle there is that forces me as an individual if I am struggling to come to a particular faith community. And there's this odd there's this odd tension there that do. I am obviously grateful for that, but should I have to turn towards affinity, uh, a, a religion that I don't have an affinity towards in order to receive help? And yeah. what does it mean? So what, where, where do you feel? Because obviously you're not going to make that person be a Christian, but should a citizen by, let's say in the, in the most tragic circumstance, house burns down, didn't have insurance, all these things, lost a job the same day. Those are obviously a very exemplary case case sure but should they then have to turn towards you all in order to be help get back on their feet um i think that's a great question my answer in this ideal world that i just drafted up my ideal world that i drafted <laughs> up i think would be yes i think that you can see circumstances like that when you think of places like the salvation army or saint jude's children hospital you know that were yeah. created you know saint jude's obviously is less christian now but originally was a catholic yeah. founded by a catholic person yeah. um and I don't think that the families that came there, you know, despite, yeah. you know, that come there with their child having cancer that don't have to pay the medical bills are like, man, but I really yeah. wish I didn't have to go to a Catholic. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think yeah, that yeah, they yeah. thought I that. I don't think they're thinking that either. And so I think that, I think that it's good. I think that you could have different communities and you can choose whether, you know, and, and even, even I think it would bring together the different, um, 
the different people within a community. You could have a secular uh, yep. homeless shelter, right? That could still be yep. run by people who like don't want to have a religious affiliation. Um, and that yep. could have volunteers that could be Jewish, non-religious, Catholic, yep. Protestant, right? That could come yep. and be part of that. Um, and then I think, you know, that, okay, if I want to donate to kids at Christmas time, like I can give to this yep. particular church that's really leading the effort on yep. that. Um, and I think that we could work together better. And I don't, I mean, for me personally, I haven't had this happen to me too much in my own personal life, but, um, I don't imagine that if, if our house burnt down and the Protestant church was willing to help us that I'd be like, Oh no, I you only receive me. assistance yeah. from Catholics. You know what I mean? You heretics, right. you out of my face, you know? Agreed. So that's why I think it would be, it would be helpful. Um, now, obviously I think where the secular world really starts to struggle with that is like that Catholic hospital would not provide you abortions. It would not provide you with yep. uh, birth control and things like that, which is why you'd have to have places that, that would, if that's something that you'd want yeah. to have happen. Um, but you have Planned Parenthoods that exist for that, yeah. that get all this government assistance and billions of dollars of donations every year. Um, yep. And so I don't I don't see why that couldn't be more privatized in that way, because you see it successful, I think, both on the religious and the secular side. And I think yep. that would just continue. Yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated by the idea of decentralizing to the extent because that's essentially what you're talking about. Right yeah. now, we have more of a centralized pool of resources. We set up particular institutions and communities that folks know of. And I think as you start to decentralize, there is a network effect in which you create thicker bonds within communities. What I, 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 what I think we're talking about is to what extent are we willing, if we're talking about like risk mitigation, to give away some of the potential societal downside to private actors? Meaning, you all now take the burden of potential um, issues arising in your communities, in your charities. What does that look like from a risk and a legal factor? That's one that neither one of us are right. an expert in and what we look like. Um, the one piece I'll push back um, respectfully is that you have seen, to your point about Planned Parenthood, obviously mm -hmm. we disagree with a number of reproductive rights and just that that term, right? There are many <laughs> in the Catholic community and others about what is your right. Um, we have seen the legislation, I believe that um, Missouri only has two, Texas has one. So when you say like, yes, there are uh, parallel secular institutions, I don't think there are for, for a lot of folks. For what type of things? Uh, for abortion and for um, contraceptive and family planning. Hmm. So do you think Planned Parenthood and places like that would not fulfill that? Like they do. So what I'm saying is if let's just use Missouri as an example, I think there's one, there's one or two. It's, it's a very select number of Planned Parenthoods in all of Missouri. Missouri, I think, is like four or six million folks. If you think about in order to get my health care, health care, if we're going to use a more decentralized model, what if I live three hours away from the nearest Planned Parenthood? What does that look like? Um, right. And what should be my access and my barrier to particular health care? Yeah, I guess it would be interesting to see how that would like reshape societies. Um, yeah. as far as like where people would choose to live would definitely be a big difference. I think that you would, I think what gets often underestimated when it comes to economics is that if we did not have to pay these exorbitant levels of taxes, like more places yeah. and more things would exist. You know, the idea that yeah. we'd just be like buying more playstations and that people would not be yeah. in a capitalist society driven to even create nonprofits that could be profitable, right? Like yeah. the people you create jobs and like you create companies that could be either for profit or nonprofit and people could uh, pay or donate to to give. I think that people would yeah. people would do that. I think you'd have like instead of if Bill Gates, I mean, if Bill Gates didn't have to put all this, you know, if, if he could do that here in the U.S. and, and just 
create all these places and not have to worry about if like corporate taxes and things like that were lower. I think that people would do that. And you'd see more places on both sides of the, you know, ideological and political spectrum Spectrum. increasing and and being created. But then you see, I just remember watching, I remember, you know, to kind of jump over to something like the homeless problem. Um, Yeah. I can't remember. I saw a video a couple of weeks ago. I can't remember if it was in Oregon or Washington or California, but it was just like very, apparently drug addicted woman um, who's homeless on the street who talked about how easy it is to be homeless. She's like, we get free cell phones. We get three meals a day. We get all this stuff. And all we do is like get high and then go eat, get high and then go eat, get high, then go eat. And then we sleep in the shelter at night, you know? And it's like, I think that private organizations would do a much better job than uh, Oregon Democrats are doing to (laughs) solve the problem of the homelessness. Um, But yeah, I guess, you know, there would be natural limitations to, I mean, I think you have natural limitations if you live in the rural place, regardless, right? Like you yep. have to drive an hour for oh, groceries. Yeah. Like there's just kind 100%. of natural inconveniences that are going to come up with that. Um, and obviously when you put things back to the States, like Roe v. Wade being overturned has done, you're going to have more challenges when it comes to wildly different accessing settings different things. pop up. Yeah. And I think, yeah. but I think that in today's world, it's easier than ever to pack up and move. I think that, you know, 200 years ago, if you wanted to move to Colorado from New Jersey, yeah. it was a lot more difficult than it is today. Yeah. You know, and so I think that's the other thing that I'm like, I think that it would just kind of work itself out, but can see that um, is is difficult to encourage when people don't really know. But I think you, like you pointed out earlier, I think Norway can be a, a somewhat good example of that. Um, but I just think that if we privatized it instead of having the government kind of not seize yeah. all the wealth, but for more or less, you know, for better or worse, that's yeah. pretty much what it is. Um, and just take it and redistribute it that that we as a community are better at doing that than the government is. Um, but what was I going to talk about? Oh, jumping over, unless you have anything that else that you want to say on that. No, I think the last point there is you and I are essentially having a discussion about what is the social contract between a group and its government look like? What things should be held by the government and are we unwilling to give away? So we, in my opinion, it's a true travesty. If we privatize the military, you'll have a bunch of outcomes yeah. in which you, you don't want to get to. So there's certain we things that we can that. easily agree to. Yeah. And then there's certain things that we need to keep keep a vigorous debate on. And I think that's where we are right now. And hopefully folks can not villainize the other side and, and try to see that they mean well. You have a charitable spirit and a Christian faith and you want to help. I think yeah. if we know that from that starting point, then conversations become easier. Yeah, for sure. I, and I think my basic math on that discussion, you know, going all the way back to the simple like founding of the United States. And I always try to take people, I'm like, let's think of, let's think of the country, right? It's hard because we're so advanced and we're 250 years into the most thriving country of all time, right? Like no country has ever existed for such a short period of time and have, I'm always like just New York city, like the shit's wild, right? Like, I mean, what we created (laughs) in such a short period of time has never been done before. And I think like, but if we can go back to the founding of the country, the founding fathers, when they're sitting down, you're literally like starting a yeah. nation, right? It's yeah, like yeah, yeah. They, they had a very strict and limited use of government. And I think that yeah. over time we've added to that. And I think that yeah. obviously, you know, as a black man who can vote, I think that some of those additions <laughs> were great. Um, yep. But I think that I really struggle on the fundamental I, level of people who don't agree that we've surpassed the level of of where we would thrive, right? Like the government has continued to grow. And if you look at the number of unelected government officials, if you look at the number, the spending, if you look at the tax code that has gone from like 92 pages to thousands of pages, like 
that we've just exceeded the level of what is needed. And even if you think that we should still add some things, I really struggle with people not at least being open-minded to the idea that some of it could reduce, right? That we just have to ever expand the control and influence of government into the daily lives of Americans. Um, And and what's interesting about it that I I think is, I find really intriguing just on the psychological and sociological level is that most people don't want that in their own personal life, right? Like most people don't want, most people want, if you think of like the American goal of making six figures, most people don't want to give 30 grand of that up, right? Like (laughs) to to taxes. Uh, And so I think that it's interesting how, and this is where I think like the, I get really frustrated with like the Democrat millionaire, billionaire, you know, conversations is it's just always kind of this like, We'll cast it on other people, and then ultimately, it usually does come back and impact the middle class in a pretty heavy way. Because millionaires and billionaires are ultimately really good at protecting their wealth, and very much so. <laughs> and yeah. Middle class very people are so. not, and so I'm like, why don't we just discuss? And we need to have more conversations yeah. like this to talk about what what is really needed. Like, let's get back to kind of the necessities yeah. of government, not the yeah. the ideals of all these free things. Um, and yeah, and, and kind of reduce that. But I want to talk about, you know, not necessarily focus specifically on reproductive rights and your definition of those, but kind of going back before that is kind of the idea of rights in general. Like, where do you derive, uh, rights from? Do you agree with kind of the declaration of independence? I guess, based on your question earlier of whether or not you believe in, you know, nature's God, um, would, would determine that, but where do you yeah. kind of think, because I, I think that, you know, kind of going back to the God or government thing, I think that's a really fundamental yeah. difference in a lot of people is some people believe that rights 100%. come from God and that yeah. God can be a number of different things, right? Um, yeah. I think the declaration leaves are really open to interpretation, but yes. some creator, and then you have people who believe that rights come from government. So what do you, what is yeah, your yeah. kind of um, perspective on that? Where rights come Love from? that. Um, and it's fascinating that you talk about uh, being uh, a black man in America that can vote because uh, Thomas Jefferson was very specific when he's writing those words, right? Um, so pursuit of happiness instead of property. Why did he not say property? Mm-hmm. Because property at that time was sadly in, indentured servants and slaves. Um, yeah. So him keeping that out was uh, a critical word choice that was not pedantic. Um, I obviously do not come from a, a creator gives us our rights. I think we are born into society and there is if I think it's Locke or Hobbes, I always get them mixed up, brutish and short. Um, and so if we are all just in nature, right, generally your affinity is with your family. You feel a biological connection. And so in terms of rights, you think I'm going to protect my family and my kin. As we have moved from hunter-gatherers and started to coalesce into a society, I think we come into a contract. This is what Rousseau and, and others discuss. And it's through that that we define what are our rights. And so in that more uh, ontological sense, I think people that are much more philosophical would start to pick me apart about, well, how is it that those rights are derived? I think we come together to discuss them. I think generally people can agree that an individual should uh, not have their life abridged upon for the betterment of the overall society. So like, I, I forget who the philosopher is that talks about the famous experiment. Should a society be allowed to flourish? even though that, you know, one individual is locked up and being tortured under the, it, under the earth. And I look it up. It's a good one to think about because that essentially gets into your discussion about what are we willing to condone in order for us to flourish? And then who is the us? So that works us from no creator to, we come together to decide our rights. 
once we come together, our association is different than others' association. That's where you get strife. And so when you consider universal human rights, I think we we say that, but the UDHR, so the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that we taught, we worked with after um, World War II, I think we give lip service to, but we use drones. We, um, we, we have not <laughs> talked about Pope Francis and climate change. And so the way that we say every human right has the exact same equal, it, it doesn't play out in a realist world. Um, so I'll pause there. Um, hopefully that made 20, 30% sense. So you would say that there is no such thing as a universal basic human right? I would, like to, I would like to say theoretically because there is. Because we haven't as like a world agreed on it and lived that out. Um, so if you look at the UDHR, I think we all agree that you, we should not infringe upon your life. However, I think we show pretty easily that if we are in a war zone and we take what we euphemistically call a casualty, if we put it in the war domain, if we said universal human rights were inviolable, then we would never take that action, right? And so I think that we can coalesce around some basic ideas of what human rights are. But when we push come to shove and we operationalize those, I think we show pretty quickly that we are willing to favor certain humans over others and for possible legitimate and less legitimate reasons. Yeah. And so you think, uh, just to clarify, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth. I'm not trying to catch no, no, you no, into please. Jordan Peterson. Here, <laughs> but <laughs> just trying to understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just to clarify. I don't, have you ever seen that interview? It's it's a hilarious interview. It's really, very, really funny. very funny. It's one of the yeah. wildest things I've ever witnessed in my entire epic life, bro. She yeah. <laughs> throughout for 60 minutes. So you're saying that you believe black people don't have rights. <laughs> I was like, whoa, <laughs> I didn't say anything close to that. So, so you're saying you hate all Catholics, Ted. Yeah. Yeah. What, what happened? Where did that come <laughs> we from? We should be in concentration camps. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> yeah, no, not even close. Um <laughs> Gotcha. So you believe that basically rights, a society comes together, they decide and determine what their rights are, and that yep. can basically evolve and change or detract from over time. Yeah. Yes. So I, yes. Yep. On that basis, what would you say would be the, would there be a basis or an immorality for slavery if, you know, the majority of people came together at the founding of the United States and declared that this, like black people do not have rights? These people have rights and slavery is one of those rights to the majority of people. What would be kind of I the argument? It, like, I assume you would argue yeah. against it, especially now. Um. <laughs> I mean, I would, that's, it's, it's a no BS fascinating question. Yeah. I think everybody says they would argue against it now, but back then, then oh, why yeah. was the majority of people there? And so obviously well, because I because we're so enlightened and better than everybody that's ever lived before. Yes. I would like to think I have a moral code and that you know me well enough to think that I would be an abolitionist then, but I don't know. And so specifically to your question, I think you see John Adams argue against this um, and another proponents that just say every human born into the world, whether endowed by a creator or just by dint of being a human, it has equal, um, what, what did he call it? Equal autonomy in the world. And so my, my argument from a non-religious point of view is that Frank, you and I obviously have different, you're smarter than I am, and I'm okay with that, but <laughs> that's, we, that's not that's not what we get to argue about. We have to say fundamentally, we're both a human in the world, and so we get the same universal right to our life. You don't get to be indentured for my betterment just because I have disproportionate power in this current system. So then it sounds like you do believe that there's a universal right to autonomy. Well, I do. What I was trying to make the point of I think there's a right. However, when you see societies come together, 
they violate those rights frequently. So those two things can both sure. be true at the same time. Yes. I a hundred percent believe in order to violate that, it, they'd have to exist. Precisely. So I, I believe yeah. that two people being born into the world are going to have wildly different mental faculties, but we will devolve quickly if we don't see them as fundamentally equal to breath. So then in the same yeah. would your I would assume maybe this is wrong because you th- said that you believe in the universal right to autonomy. And I guess I assume that reproductive rights would fall underneath that. So do you think that reproductive yeah. rights are a natural, I don't know if you want to say natural or universal right that yeah. you would say fall under the the umbrella of autonomy? Or do yeah. you believe that, um, and I guess, you know, reproductive rights, you can specify between abortion and birth control, because I think those are two different oh, things definitely. Yeah, yeah. Um, when it comes to this specifically. But or would you say yeah. that reproductive rights are one of the negotiated societal agreed upon rights that you described earlier? I, I think it's uncontroversial, and I realize I'm probably being controversial by saying that, that reproductive rights are societies come together and they discuss those. Mm. That, w- that would have been my guess, but I just wanted to ask. I think that's interesting. Yeah. And so then do you so that you would feel that it's at least quasi absurd that people get so frustrated that people disagree with that because it's a debated thing. Well, I, the, the only pushback I'll give to quasi absurd, and I know, I know you just doing a little flair. I like it. Um, <laughs> Is because if I was a woman, obviously I'm not. So let me say two things. One, if I was a woman and somebody told me, no, it's it's a very, we should get to debate it. I, I should get a say in, in what you do with your body. I'd be like, oh, snap, I'm feeling a very certain kind of way here. And I understand why I would have a visceral reaction. That's part of the problem with having a discussion about an individual and having a discussion, which is very different about how do we come together as a society and mm-hmm. say, what all these individuals should be governed as. Those are two very different things, right? Yeah. The other piece that I had was, let me pause there. How, how does that resonate or not? Yeah, I, th- I think that that makes sense to a certain extent. I think to me, I understand, I understand and get why people get so upset about it for sure. Yeah. I think that, to, it, I think that it's, I don't know, short-sighted or just like very, very focused on a specific thing. Um, yeah. meaning that it is this idea that we want to control your body. We want to dictate what you do yeah, as yeah, your yeah. doctor versus just the step back that even like I, I respect and, and appreciate Joe Rogan for acknowledging this, that when he talks about yeah. Christians or just pro-lifers in general, that he's like, they yeah. literally think you're murdering a baby. And he's like, I 100%. don't think that, but he's like, but yeah. you can see why they get so upset about it. So that's the part yeah. on the woman that gets so frustrated about this idea like that to me is a very lazy intellectual position to take to truly believe and i've had obviously plenty of people tell me that and women angry pro-choice women tell me that over my lifetime as a pro-lifer that you're just trying to control women's bodies and it's like you have that to me is like the brainwashed not thinking about you know surface level leftist that is like no uh, this is what you think. And it's like, have you ever listened to a single pro-life argument in your lifetime? Yeah. <laughs> because no, nothing, I, what we're, you can say that maybe we're trying to hide it or cover it up, but yeah, I don't yeah, know yeah. what I gain from controlling some yeah. woman's body in California. I can tell you that it brings me no joy to think no. that I have anything to say yeah. about what she has to do, you know, with, with, that, uh, yeah, with her own choices. I, I love that you bring it up. So essentially what we're talking about is the acorn tree philosophical argument. When Mm -hmm. does an acorn become a tree? Um, Obviously, from a Catholic faith, there's a particular understanding of conception starts. But to think that we're trying to control the ground is silly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, and to your point, right, there is is a strain of this argument, which I very much 
I understand, but I think if you carry into other domains is really unhelpful. And that is, you're not a woman, you don't get a say. Now, there's a legitimate argument to say that there's there's probably not enough women in, in certain particular politics. However, if you carry that over and you say, you never get to talk about black people because, Ted, you're a white citizen. You never get to talk about any Asian policy because you're a white citizen. Trans, that homosexuality. Yeah. As, yes. You, we have to, to the point about universal human rights, right? If every citizen does not get an equal say, we quickly start a game in which we're going to balkanize and fracture our discourse yep. to a way that we might think makes commonsensical, but you have to extrapolate that and see you're going to have really negative downstream consequences. 100%. Yeah, I think that's one of the the biggest keys of that, you know, and why I, that's like my least favorite thing to hear in the argument. Yeah. One, uh, just for the basic reason that also every every abortion took a man to to get to that point, right? Like to there, be a part of, it. Yeah. yeah. There is some, uh, you know, yeah, masculine input to that. So, um, yeah. yeah. So, anyways, we we can put that aside for a second, uh, not for a second, for a while, <laughs> um, but kind of going back to so, would you say to this question? Do you believe in uh, universal truth? Do you believe that some things are true for all people? I think that even the like short the concept is, of two plus two equals four. Like, do you believe that that? Yes, I think that there are some much smarter mathematicians than me that want to talk about like what actually we're saying, and that yeah. there are mathematical truths in the world. But yes, I'm not a post-truth revisionist in some extreme sense. Definitely not. One of the hottest takes I feel like you've had throughout this podcast, especially as a center-left person, is you've frequently refer referred to uh, boys and girls. Yeah. And so I'm curious your thoughts. We talked about this beforehand on uh, gender ideology. Do you believe that a man can actually become a woman? From So let me back up. What you're talking about is sex. So I think okay. let's differentiate the conversation. So there are, and I, I would want to start by saying, do you believe there are people that are born intersex? Yes. Yes. So from there, I start with, there are, in my opinion, sexually, there are, and I call them overlapping distributions. As far as like people who are born with things, yeah, as far both, as like- Both genitalias. Yeah. Yes. Or at least parts of both. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Typically, you don't parts have a full, yeah. No. Full both. Yes. I don't, we I don't, 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 we happens, don't have to go into but, the graphic yeah. nature of that. And whatever the percentages are, people get hung up on that. We're not statisticians, don't care. There are just some people who are born in between. And then for most of society, people are born more clear man in a sexual sense and more clear yeah. woman in a sexual sense. I, do, and I don't think it, that's a disagreement. It's my understanding, though, that intersex people, like if you looked at their like uh, molecular makeup, would still have yeah. uh, asex. Okay. Like I now, don't think that they're what, like you know how they say like every every cell in your body that has a nucleus is is gendered is either yeah. male or female. Like I it's my understanding that everyone's still a majority but you might have someone who's a female that's also born with certain male parts or vice yeah. versa. Yeah, this is where but I don't I'm think that there's people who up. that it's like 50/50. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, that's um, my understanding. And this is where yeah. maybe we just you and I hit a a level of biology that neither one of us has. So the reason I start with that conversation is to say, as I understand it, there are varying levels of testosterone. So like anatomically, if I, I grew up in the Midwest, right? It used to be very straightforward when I was a kid. I was like, well, you have this member and you have that part. And that's just how that works. Yeah. If you define man and woman as that, then sure. Then I think we need to consider with the intersex. 
then I think most people go, oh, okay, so maybe it's a little more complicated than that. And then the next step there is to say, okay, so you got XY chromosomes. Well, then we know that there are some people that are born with XX or XXY and that then if you take the next step, and this is one I would love your take on, so put a pin in it, and that is around the Olympics are trying to define male and female now, and they're going down to the testosterone estrogen level because mm-hmm. they're saying, what does it actually mean to be a, a man or a woman? And we know testosterone gives you an edge over people. I'm bringing all of this up to say, yes, do I believe in the categories? And I also believe that there are rounding errors of statistics that make it more complicated than just saying man, woman. I think both of those things can be true. And it's, it is very aggravating that I, I don't see that discourse and us willing to say that out loud. Which part? So you, the latter? That, that there are, for the mass, vast majority of people, man and woman is, is pretty clear. And then there are a number of individuals that it's not as clear. And yeah, both of those things can be said at the same time and we don't have to compete with each other. For sure. To, um, yeah, from my perspective, from debating this with people, um, it, that always feels the, the intersect argument or like route, I feel like often feels yeah. like the transgenders version of the rape and incest argument in abortion, where it makes up like a very uh, okay. small percentage of the, the population yeah. that, you know, the, the cases that we're talking about. Um, but yeah. it's often used as kind of a segue into like allowing everything, you know, because I think that yeah, yeah, yeah. one of the challenges with that is like I'm I'm fully on board with talking about like what do we do for people who are born intersex? Like obviously that's a huge cross yeah. to carry, you know, to use a Christian metaphor. Um, and it's <laughs> a, a challenging thing, right? Nobody would wish that. Nobody would want that. Nobody would wish to be yeah. gender dysphoric in in general. I don't think you know. And I think yeah. we can recognize that that to be confused. Um, to, to think about that, to be confused about if I really feel like I'm a man or a woman, um, is extremely, extremely confusing. Um, the one thing that, you know, when I discuss it with you or, um, our conservative friend, Derek Silver, uh, <laughs> I always appreciate is I think the reason why the, the gender ideology one is so interesting to me and why I'm interested in discussing with people who identify themselves left of middle at all is because it's the one to me that is the most obviously, like contradictory and like unreasonable just from like any, like whatever kind of basis of reason you're coming to, like to think that like to, to simultaneously like be a feminist and like be pro woman, but to also at the same Uh, time boil down, uh, you know what it means to be a woman to just be the feeling. Like I'm just, if I feel like a woman, then I am a woman. And it's like maybe the first woman, you know, uh, maybe we've already had the first female president and it was a man who really thought that he was a woman. Like, to think of yep. what that does to women, but then also to, to say that we're taking gender stereotypes out of the world, right? Uh, yep. Gender roles and all these things out of the world. But at the same time, to to be a woman, I'd have to have surgery and have these things yep. done. But at the same time, I'm already a woman if I don't do that. But it's like, then yep. why do I feel the need to to go and do all these things or you know, take yeah, estrogen the, in the first the place? Categorization still yeah, there's, yep. I mean, there's like 12 different points to go down the list of like, where it's yeah. just like, constantly doesn't make a ton of sense and that's all aside from that's like pushing into the actual ideology that's aside from kind of the yeah. like basic rational belief that has existed yeah. throughout the entire or the majority i would say of human history that people believed that there were men and women and that those two people yeah. were different you know those two types of, of yeah. human persons were were different in nature um yeah not necessarily meant to be unequal you know that does not oh, no. equate yeah. that but um at least you know unequal in dignity or you know respect or yeah. right but um 
that they are the same or that they could just be changed from one or the other. I mean, you see that. I don't know if you've watched Matt Walsh's What is a Woman, but it's really interesting. I've seen that. And he goes into this kind of remote African village and asks them about their views on all of it. If you like here, I remember watching on, man, I can't remember who played the the clips. It was either Ben Shapiro or one of those guys, I think, that played a clip from, I think it was the president of Kenya talking to somebody in the U.S. It was either CNN or some news outlet. And they were asking him about like same-sex marriage. And he's like, that's like, this isn't an issue here. Like, don't bring your Western world problems. Yeah. And it's really interesting to me. I mean, I, I'm we could have a whole other podcast on what I think are the um, cognitive dissonances in the uh, political world, which exists on both the right yeah. and the left. Um, but I'm extremely intrigued by the ones on the left because you have this like hate for exporting Americanism, right? Like America, uh, yeah, Western yeah, yeah. ideas and, and all that is bad. Um, but then yep. we have this kind of ideological colonialism where we want to force these African countries to accept yeah. our views on trans ideology. And it's like, if they don't want it, why are we trying to force it on them? Why do we have COVID spending packages that include trans ideology in Iran? Like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. we, don't, we don't need to be doing that. We can just keep it here. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that was all just a, a bunch of uh, verbal vomit. But um, <laughs> I just, yeah, I think it's such an interesting topic because of that, because I think that, I, I find it to be really difficult for people who want to be politically correct or even just want to be compassionate and, um, you know, kind in, in their words to others. Because obviously it's such a sensitive yeah. topic and people feel so tight about it. Um, and I get that. But it is I feel like it, it's it's to me, I think, going to be a, a great demarcation for a lot of people and a great kind of yeah. drawing of the line for a lot, of, especially yeah. when it comes to parents. Um, yeah. because it just, I think that people are willing to push and change their definition of the word marriage. They're willing to, yeah. you know, support racist ideas and racist things towards Asians and whites because of their, you know, feelings about racism and slavery, yeah. you know, towards black people. But I think that this one is going to be extremely difficult for a lot of people because it just like at a certain point, I think that people have to decide between living in reason and truth and, getting on board with everything, just like anything that anybody that yeah. you affiliate your political party puts forth. And I think that this is one of the biggest pushes for that as far as like the Overton window goes, you know? But, Great use of Overton window. And I, and I do think your, your point was resonated well, which is that at the individual level, I think you're going to have uh, no problem in my opinion, if you know a young man or woman who has gender dysphoria and they, stay in a particular body so they are sexually of that body and they see themselves as something else i think you as a parent you might be like i don't think that that is appropriate or is grounded in reality but i i have a hard time ever seeing if you help to raise that child you would be like yeah i'll call you denise i'll call you whatever you want i i think that you just saying that um for me sees that there is so much more compassion at an individual level and when we extrapolate this very generally it's very easy for us to get lost in in the generalizations. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, me as uh, what I can confirm is that me as an American, like if a individual adult just wanted to, you know, do dresses like if a man wants to dress as a woman, like I, I have a hard time making a political argument as to why I would, you know, want to elite, you know, make that illegal. I wouldn't recommend yeah. it. I don't suggest it. I don't think it's good. I can see why women and, and especially feminist women are offended by that, um, especially when it's yeah. like so overdone, you know, to the point of like, 
um, you watch like Dilma Mulvaney videos and it's like, oh, I cried three times today. And, you know, I told somebody I didn't know what I wanted to do or where I wanted to eat. And it's like these like horrible stereotypes of women yeah. um, that are portrayed by men. Um, but I, I'm like, yeah, if you want to do that and record yourself doing that and put it on the Internet, like go for it. But um, yeah. where I think, like I said, going back to the parents, where I think it's going to really start to become an issue is in the schools yeah. And the yep. constant pushing of it in books, children's books and movies and things like that, because you're just seeing such a rapid rise that I think even the most woke of individuals has a hard time justifying the increase of percentage of kids in high school who are identifying as LGBT compared to 20 years ago um, to think that that's just natural. And what human society was always, you know, 40 percent trans, like I think you're going to have a hard time pushing that on most people and getting most people to agree with that. Um, but I think you're 100% right. There is a lot of compassion on the one-to-one levels. And if I met somebody sending someone on a plane that was trans, like I wouldn't just immediately, you know, go into how terrible I think that they are because I don't necessarily think that they're terrible. I think that um, I feel a lot of compassion and a lot of, I'm moved a lot, a lot of empathy for the people who are, and I think increasing in number, but not increasing in in um, loudness. The ampl- amplification of their voices is the, the detransitioners, the people who have done it in, you know, had very little resistance when they said they wanted to get the surgery done and then got the surgery done, find that it's irreversible and, and feel that they've made a horrible mistake. And many of those people end up taking their lives. And I think that that's also really tragic. So I think it comes back to something we talked about earlier. And I think it comes down to this basic kind of economic argument that I've been really applying to so many different things is that we often look at the results of policy or ideas on just a very specific group of people and the very short term results of yeah. that. Right. Versus like taking the kind of wider perspective and looking at the full picture and saying, like, is is this really best for the person? If we're going to have people transition, if medical doctors are going to do this, shouldn't there be some restrictions on like you can't just have a 16 year old come in one afternoon and then you make a life altering surgery for them. But rather, you know, having some type of process in place, at least that. Yeah. It's then the counseling or, you know, whatever it is. And that can look a number of different ways. That doesn't have to be, um, you know, uh what the conversion therapy camps and stuff like that. Yeah. Like there's other ways to do that. But anyways, amazing. Uh, a last question of the day to end on a high note of all of your ass tattoos, which one is your favorite? <laughs> uh, it is not one that has Scooby-Doo would be scat. So definitely respect. Uh, respect. Yeah. I only have one. We'll ever only have one. Um, this will probably bar me from ever joining some elite society, but yes, I do have that. I'm not ashamed of it. And I love that. Do do your um, do your followers know all about it? I don't think I've ever talked about it. Yeah, are, is so, you going to leave this in, or are you going to cut this part? Oh, I was going to leave it in. <laughs> okay, nice. Well, yeah. So I I do think it's for me. If if we're going to end on this, and I got a couple of questions for you, and that that doesn't have to be in the we have on our uh, posteriors, we have a tattoo that represents the uh, characteristics of the offense, which are surprise, concentration, audacity, and tempo, and I think. Nate, when you think about the individuals that have that tattoo, they're for the many discussions we could have around diversity in the army or diversity more generally, the beauty of uh, an institution that gives you a mission that's greater than your any individual ideology is that people that would have never interacted assimilate very quickly. And we represent ourselves with scat in that way. You are different than Bob. I am different than both of you. And and Derek is different than everybody in the world. (laughs) And, and, and when you have Diaz and Evan, um, you have, uh, in my opinion, a pretty cool amalgamation of what it means to be a citizen in 
from various backgrounds and that it is possible to find more in common than you have uh, apart. I know that sounds banal, but if we're going to have any kind of society, I think you have to do that. And so it might not be the military for folks. It may be faith. It may be some community organization. However, um, a victimization mentality or, or trying to find fault uh, will always be easier than it is to find something that bonds us. So for what it's worth. Absolutely. No, I love it. That was that was really great. And so let's move on to uh, the, the reversal of the questions. Yeah. Love this. So, and again, you can, you can drop this or you, you, you can use it. Um, first question that I had was if you had a pseudonym, what would it be? Like a fake name for writing or podcasting? Like a pen name. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> what would it be? Ted Delicat. <laughs> <laughs> or no, no, Bob Delicat. That's what I think. It would Bob Delicat. Yeah. Love that. All right. Or Bob Delicat. Ted Doherty. Yeah. One of those two. Yeah, I like Ted Doherty. Yeah, that's Still not TV. bad. That's not bad. No, Doherty's a little bit more common, I feel like. So it'd be easier to kind of yeah. not pin it towards you. get along. Yeah. Um, ser- serious, serious question. We'll go from fun to serious, fun to serious. Loving v. Virginia, one of my favorite um, Supreme Court cases at all time. You know that one? Mm-mm. Interracial marriage. So I think it was 1969. I should know it. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. It's just, it's a, first of all, like, there's I'm a, a product of it in so many ways. Boom. It's beautiful, <laughs> right? Um, do you have any fear, and I have not looked into this at all, that that is, an, that is actually under attack? Oh, that's a great question. No, I do not. I think that that was, um, a, I don't want to say a propaganda play, but a fear play when all the Roe v. Wade stuff was coming down. And the idea is that the idea that to me that interracial marriage belongs in the same discussion or debate as same sex marriage is absolutely absurd because it it basically tries to equate race to gender. And um, those two are just very different things. I think that, or or not even race to gender, but uh, kind of, but uh, more race to sexual orientation which I think are, are very, very different things. I think that the idea okay. and the definition of marriage that most of us have worked with for the, you know, throughout human history, yeah. that is a lifelong commitment for me from, from the, from the Catholic perspective, right? It's a sacrament of matrimony is a lifelong commitment. It's a sacrament in the church. That's a lifelong commitment yeah. um, between a man and a woman under mm-hmm. God, right? Made with God, yeah. working towards the salvation of each other and the procreation yeah. of children and the raising of holy children. That's kind of a long and not super clean definition, but that's, I feel like hits all the kind of main bullet points and that has no basis on race, right? Like there's yeah. no reason why that could, should have ever been excluded, right? That, that race between yep. any, or marriage between any two races would be excluded, yeah, yeah. but that does in its definition exclude same sex marriage, which is why I'm so ardently, one of the things that I'm so ardently against. And I, I think I even argue with some like libertarians on this is yeah. like, I'm not necessarily I'm not necessarily politically against there being unions between two men yeah. or two women. What I don't like and I think is really really dangerous is society redefining a word that has existed throughout languages for centuries, you know, for a very yeah. very very long time. Um it's yeah. just it's just a different thing and it doesn't mean that doesn't mean from the political American side that I think that it's bad. That doesn't mean that I think yeah. that it's not should should be banned. Um, and you can make arguments for that. I'm not even saying that I would vote in favor of, of the unions, but I at least think that it should be defined as a different thing because it is a different thing because it, because that procreate, I mean, even on the secular level, I would say that it's a, a, a lifetime life supposed to be a lifelong commitment between a man and a woman 
that has the possibility of creating children. And mm-hmm. just that part being left out of it, and obviously many other parts of it being different, um, yeah, it, it, it's a different thing. And I think that that is one of my biggest struggles with the idea that same-sex marriage, because interracial marriage is still marriage, where same-sex marriage to me is not. Gotcha. I, re- I respect that opinion. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, um, I, while I disagree vehemently in certain ways, I think where we're um, strong, right, is in your mind the state has the ability to create a protection of contract mm-hmm. and that is under a legal basis. And to you, right. The word marriage has actually nothing to do with the state. Right. Yeah. I, I actually really like um, Ben Shapiro has talked about this kind of extensively in the last couple of years of just kind of taking the state out of marriage in general. Um, yeah. One thing that I really dislike, I, I know a person, my barber actually that I started going to recently, he is, quasi-Catholic. He claims he's more Catholic than he is. Um, and this is a great example of this, but he is not married to his mother, his girl, longtime girlfriend and mother of his two kids because of tax reasons. And I don't like that the church requires us to have a marriage license from the state to get married in the church. Cause I'm like, why does that matter? Yeah. You know, 100%. I, that's a, I haven't been able to ask like a, a priest that's knowledgeable on it or a bishop that question, yeah, yeah, yeah. but I would love to know. I'm like, what, what does it matter if the state has agreed to this or not for yeah. the sake of the sacrament of, of matrimony? You know, we don't require that. You know, I don't think you need a birth certificate for baptism. So it's like, what do you need? A, oh, definitely not. <laughs> a yeah, yeah, yeah. For, for marriage. I don't understand it. So I think that that would be the, the better option. Um, yeah. yeah, that would be probably my preference, but I haven't super committed to that yet, but if the state is going to be involved, I think one of the bigger issues that we face too is no fault divorce. Um, and then obviously the issue on the economic, and I don't want to derail us too much, but the welfare side of um, basically incentivizing women to not get married, men to not marry women, um, yep. which I've also seen in, in friends and family as well. Not just from my barber, but. Yes. Uh, yeah. You, you, you and I, I'm sure would have a, we'd be off camera for this one. Um, and having a drink, I know that we we strongly disagree with no fault of force. However, I do understand it as um, it makes so much sense in the in the Catholic faith in the Catholic worldview about why you would want to incentivize stronger bonds and unions and to work through difficulties. Um, so you you were the one that brought this up, and I am I'm over my skis. So you educate me. There are parts of Pope Francis, his holy name, that I would think probably don't gel with your political outlook. Um, specifically around, uh, he has a, he has a strong emphasis on climate change and he speaks yeah. frequently, uh, around wealth inequality. How do you go about, um, how do you go about your faith and, and being an adherent to the faith that he leads? And what do you do with that? Yeah, I think one, I definitely struggle with some of that. I think he is often times portrayed as more socially liberal than he is. Um, yeah. that's been something that I've, come to believe and my mm-hmm. biggest frustration with him most of the time is that he uh can be vague and okay. being yeah. vague is not helpful to the catholic faithful because obviously a lot of times they're tricky questions or they're difficult topics and so yeah. it's important to have clarity on that especially coming from the supreme pontiff right so um, <laughs> yeah it's a it's a big deal now there's something that i think is really interesting and important for people to understand about the infallibility of the pope is that what I even thought for like my first 12 years of Catholicism, maybe not 12, maybe like eight, but I thought that we like that the Pope being infallible meant that everything the Pope said was infallible, which is not the case. The 
infallibility of the chair of Peter, so whoever's the current pope, is actually when he's speaking in a specific way, right? So we call it ex cathedra. It's it's very specific. He used to be like in a specific place, speaking in a specific okay. manner, like to say like something like in vitro fertilization, right? Um, or yeah. or Pope um, uh, Pope Paul the sixth in the twentieth century speaking on um, uh, birth control, right? Because that okay. hadn't existed to the level that it started to in the twentieth century. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so there's certain things that kind of come about, right? Kind of new things, and you could argue maybe that climate change is one of them. One thing that Pope Francis did pretty make, make a pretty big impact on, and there's lots of debates within Catholic theology on whether or not this was like an infallible statement was he changed the catechism yeah. in regards to the death penalty um really okay. saying that it's never moral to have the death penalty um which, is that is which, that something to jump in are you have you took that under your umbrella and do you agree disagree with it but you say i'm a catholic so i have to follow this yeah it's a very tricky thing so there is obviously lots of doctrine that you have to agree with as a catholic um it's not yeah. raised to the level of doctrine um, it's okay. something that is at the point of we should really prayerfully consider it and lean towards it. Kind of, there's kind of like different tiers, right? Of like things okay. you have to accept, that you know, yeah. and then things that are kind of like highly encouraged, and then things that are like yeah. this is kind of the pope or bishop's opinion, right? Yeah, um, yeah. And so that's kind of where all of these different topics can lie, right? So I don't agree that the death penalty is never morally acceptable. I think that I do believe that in the United States we don't have a place to say that it's morally acceptable. Um, and so okay. I am not for death penalty in the U.S. My again, I kind of go back to like if we are starting a nation, if we're living in a village, like that's where I like to make most of my decisions because I still think that those I think that those help you to clarify what are the universal timeless principles that we should strive okay. to build society around. And so for me, the death penalty would be sufficient if there was a hundred of us or a thousand of us living in a society. And, yeah. and, and I'm talking like Native Americans 500 years ago. Right. Um, yeah. And some dudes just go around cutting people's heads off. Like we don't have a maximum security nope. prison. We don't have the resources to detain this guy twenty four seven. We have to kill him. You know what I mean? Like we don't yeah. have a choice but to to end his life if he's not going to stop. Right? And yeah. um, chopping three heads off is enough to to tell me like you're probably going to do it again. Um, yeah. And I think that you could make the argument for other things, other crimes that he would be committing in the community. Right? Um, I think that's yeah. why you had such uh, serious penalties for crime like theft back in the day right because like people were just barely getting by you can't just be going around yeah. stealing shit right and so yeah. um you get your hand cut off or something like that so i think that uh it, there's places where it's morally acceptable i think that it's wrong to say that it's not you know it's universally immoral yeah, yeah, yeah um and i wonder what he would say to that kind of circumstance but i do get him advancing or wanting to promote that it it is immoral for a country like the united states with the wealth that we have um, yeah. to not just keep people in prison for the rest of their lives. Um, cause I think that's the the better way, but that would kind of be my thing on climate change. I'm not, I don't think that I'm, uh, I don't claim to be a climate change denier. I don't change that these things are happening. I yeah. greatly disdain the catastrophizing of it constantly that you've seen for the last 50 years of, um, extremist believing that the world was going to end in 10 to 20 years mm -hmm. and it continuously not ending in 10 to 20 years. I think it's a, a pretty big issue um, that people say that and that that kind of ideology is promoted and believed. Um, and I also don't believe that uh, we need to just like totally like shut down capitalism for the sake of climate change, because I think that capitalism is one of the greatest things that will help to save climate change. Um, and I think you see that with the way that we've found all these new types of energy, right? And and different mm -hmm. energy forms of energy that will be 
sustainable um, that without innovation do not get um, discovered or implemented yeah. into society. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast episode with my boy, Ted Delicath. I hope that that was helpful for you to see some just some great ways that you can have wonderful conversations and wonderful friendships with people who see the world very differently than you and have respectful dialogue and disagreement. So great place to end there on how much I love capitalism and how I think it will help to save the planet, or at least would help to save the planet, because that's what we're going to be diving into in this coming Monday's episode. So I've got some fun stuff planned for the next couple of weeks. As you know, we're going to continue our series on the seven pillars. This coming Monday, we're going to do financial excellence part one, and then we'll have financial excellence part two the following Monday. So in part one, I'm going to finally be doing my overview, kind of a basic lesson on economics. I know that there's a lot of Catholics out there who reached out to me, who uh, listened to my God or government episode, or were kind of following along when I was you know, having that debate with, um, I can't remember the woman's name. Uh, what is her name? I can't remember, but she was, she was great. She's a great person. Um, but I had to cook her on uh, the church's view on socialism, which was really fun on the internet. And uh, a lot of people were like, yeah, I don't really know the difference. I don't really know much about economics or the difference between the two systems or all of that stuff. And I think it's something that's really important for us to understand what we should do and how we can be good stewards of our own personal money. We have to understand the system that we live in or with the system we should be striving to live in and how we view money in general. And what you'll come to see, I think, and what I really hope to portray, because I've been thinking about this episode for months, is that there's a lot more fundamental issues and beliefs that come out of, um, or actually that, that presuppose that kind of are the foundation for the way we view the world and the societal system that we are in favor of, whether that's capitalism or socialism. And so I'm going to dive into that. And then next week's guest is going to be really awesome. My mortgage lender, who is just an amazing dude, uh, we sit down and we go through kind of home buying 101 and we talk about the market, his predictions for the next couple of years, uh, not just the housing market, but the market in general. Um, and then talk about ebbs and flows, personal finance, um, and then go through the steps of in detail of how to buy a house, good times to buy a house, bad times to buy a house, both in the market and in your personal life. And then that following Monday, I'll be getting more into the details and the weeds on personal finance when it comes to financial excellence. And yeah, and we got some great guests coming up that week as well. And so very, very excited to continue to provide you with this content. Hope that it's been a huge blessing for you. Remember to come join us on Locals in two days. The next uh, weekly roundup will be coming out. And we've had some fun stuff go down already this week. Um, and so I've got a few articles already highlighted uh, to share with you this Friday and to talk through. So hope you continue to have a great week. Strive hard to be your best. And God bless you.